Welcome to Music Biz 101 and more on Brave New Radio WPSC on the campus of William Patterson University. I'm your professor, David Kirk Philp. And I'm the good Dr. Steve Marconi. Our show is a little different this week, isn't it, Steve? That's right. This show, taken from our Spring Music Management Seminar Series, features adjunct professor Steve Leeds interviewing Live Nation's VP of Marketing, Donna Eichmeyer. We hear them talk about music festival marketing, dynamic ticket pricing, and more, but we don't want to give it all away. Listen hard because there's some great stuff here. Don't you agree, my co-host with the mo-host? Whatever you say. Be sure to go to musicbiz101wp.com to sign up for our newsletter, read about current events in the music industry, and learn more about our podcast. Yes, our podcast is available on Stitcher Radio. You can download Stitcher for free on your iOS or Android device. Stick around and listen to this insightful interview. Then come back next week at 8 p.m. for another great Music Biz 101 and More radio show. Free advice about the music industry every Wednesday night at 8 o'clock. Take it away, Steve Leeds! Thank you for coming out on this uh, cold, uh, wintry night. Um, so it was a couple of years ago, we've um, been doing this class for a while, maybe 10 years? Yeah, yeah something like that. Um, and we had a, the class that night over at the library, and I was lucky enough to have uh, a 60s pop icon. Um, her name was Leslie Gore. And um, I never thought I'd be here, a class saying that one of the people that spoke with us in class here is no longer with us. So <clears throat> I'd like to dedicate um, the rest of the classes this semester, the seminar, uh, in her honor and her memory. Because she came and, and really um, explained a lot about what it was like to be a pop star back in the 60s and uh, enlightened many of us to the fact that she really never saw much money because back then um, when she signed to Mercury Records, her dad helped her do the deal and really didn't understand the fundamentals of the business and she only got paid royalties many, many years later and not a significant amount. So uh, <clears throat> she passed away yesterday, uh, two days ago, and um, any of you who know her music would be familiar with some of her songs. It was It's My Party or Judy's Turn to Cry or something. So, um, and we also learned that, that that was really just the surface of those, those pop tunes, but her association with Quincy Jones, Jones and, and so on and so forth, and the, the legitim legitimacy of her as a true great singer and an artist. Uh, you know, she wasn't boasting, but it came out that night how, how uh, fortunate she was and how fortunate we were to have her here. Right. And, and Quincy Jones still, last time he came up to Sirius XM, he talked about his girl, Leslie, and how, you know, it was the first really mainstream pop thing he was, in, was involved with um, and how much he adored her, adores her and uh, how much fun he had working with her and how she was still his, his gal, if you will. So um, I don't want to dwell on that, but I just thought I'd put that out there, give a little perspective for this semester. Um, <clears throat> so tonight, to kick off the series, I was very fortunate to uh, be connected <coughs> with this young woman who's with us. Um, <coughs> her name is Donna Eichmeyer, and um, she's one of those people behind the scenes you're not going to see her on the front page of Billboard, perhaps, but she's the one <coughs> who's calling a lot of the shots um, and oversees the marketing uh, of, of many, if not all, of the Live Nation events in and around the tri-state area. Um, she's a lot of responsibilities, but I wanted to start off, rather than getting into the nuts and bolts of that, because um, I think it's always important for everybody to understand and know that she just didn't pop up one day and say, okay, I'm vice president here in Live Nation in New York City. There is a history of how she got here, and I always think that's important for you as you leave the hallowed halls here to understand what might happen and how, how it works to get um, to where you are today. And by the way, you'd be interested, uh, Dr. Marconi, that she's also a Newhouse grad. <laughs> of all things, I only learned that this evening. Another one, here we go, right. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit down, and, and you, you, you're free to sit down. Um, too, but I just thought maybe you could start, um, <coughs> tell the class a little bit about um, how you started in the business and how you got where you are today. Sure. Um, I grew up in Schenectady, New York, certainly not a hotbed for entertainment or anything else interesting. 
Um, but to your point earlier, you mentioned passion. And I think that if I had to pinpoint one thing that's important really for any job, any career, is passion because you spend a lot of time doing it. And if you don't feel passionate about it, it's a waste of everybody's time. I knew uh, in high school I thought it was journalism. And I went to Syracuse and decided then it wasn't journalism but because I wanted to be a music writer. And then it was going to be too complicated for me to be a music writer. So I switched to public relations. Um, but was involved in writing about music in college. And then I went and interned at the Saratoga Performing Arts Center as a publicity writer for two summers. And then went and worked at a PR firm, which my primary account was the Saratoga Performing Arts Center. And then I was hired from the PR firm to go and work at the PR, or to work at SPAC directly. I did that for, I think, nine years. Um, that was wonderful because growing up, I didn't really have a lot of exposure to the arts. So that was the SPAC was the summer home of the New York City Ballet, the Philadelphia Orchestra, the New York City Opera. I had absolutely no idea. So I had to just, I went and got books and I read everything that I could find. Um, I remember at one point, <clears throat> I was setting up uh, an interview with the timpani player for the Philadelphia Orchestra. And I walked in and I asked where he was and they said, well, over near the timpani. And I'm like... I had no, and then they just said the big drums over there. But it was a learning curve. I had to figure it out because I obviously lo already looked really stupid in that instance. But it was really just wanting to be there. The energy of the, the performance, whether it was a ballet performance, a concert, a jazz festival, a chamber music festival, it was all that excitement. So I dove in. I can't tell you how many books I read about from ballerinas. Um, I would be in the library reading about Bach and Beethoven just to understand what it was that made all of this work so well and how it was so amazing. Uh, and then Live Nation came in to Saratoga Performing Arts Center. We had promoted all the concerts, all the classical. Live Nation came in, it was SFX at the time, and took over all the concerts. So I ended up staying at SPAC for a couple of years and developed, actually worked with VH1 on Save the Music with the jazz festival, um, built up some uh, student programs so college students could go see <clears throat> the orchestra and the ballet at a cheaper price and really tried to cultivate the arts in that regard because the difference between these one night shows and when you have a ballet or an orchestra residency, you really have to educate. If you like Dave Matthews, like Dave Matthews. If you're not sure, you have to try to sell the ballet or the orchestra more as an experience. You're not trying to get someone to become an expert in classical music. So it was a different kind of marketing, uh, definitely a more challenging marketing. But then I decided I missed the excitement of a sold out show because you don't really get those with classical, uh, certainly not in a 5,100 seat covered theater. And then I went to work for Live Nation and it started out with just the capital district. Then it quickly, I think after three months, moved to basically north of Manhattan. So <clears throat> I got stuck Buffalo, Rochester, Syracuse, Albany, Ithaca, Binghamton, um, sometimes Utica, doing all of Live Nation concerts there. It was probably about 80 to 90 shows a year, with the primary focus being Saratoga Performing Arts Center and Darien Lake out near Buffalo in the summer. And then they called me to come to New York. <clears throat> and it quickly went from 80 to 90 shows to about 400 shows. And it, that was a, the, another learning curve in a different regard, um, balancing all those shows. And it went from under the radar to under the microscope. When the agent, the manager, the artist lives here and they're walking by and they want to know why they don't see a snipe or why they've listened to Z100 and they haven't heard anything about um, the show, it's constant pressure. Um, and definitely making sure that all your bases are covered because there are so many people here. And all it takes is one person to say, I saw the email blast and, you know, uh, Bjork was listed fourth. Why wasn't she listed first? So the whole level, the volume, the pressure totally changed. It's been a different experience all the way through. Um, but obviously, for the most part, um, a very fun experience. So when you started it at, uh, I guess, your first experience was at SPAC. So what, what experiences do you have <coughs> that you would relate to that were 
gender related as far as being a woman in a business which is predominantly male dominated although that is slowly changing but I mean along the way there had to be some you know because you're running around with in mostly a male environment I would think it's back it wasn't but I never really felt it I have to say maybe it was the influence of New York City Ballet where every, it's a lot of mostly female dancers and a lot of the arts-based organizations really had a lot of women and women in powerful positions. Um, as time went on, maybe it became really Live Nation where it became a little more male-dominated. Um, I didn't really have, I never felt like it affected me in a negative way, uh, that it held me back. You know, sometimes it can be a little dicey uh, backstage because you're a female. Ironically, it was never really with concerts. It was more with the classical. Uh, they run a little crazier, believe it or not. But uh, I never really felt I was at a disadvantage. And also, I think if you look at marketing and public relations in general, there's a lot of women. And, and it, when I was at SPAC, <clears throat> it was more PR-based than marketing-based, although there wasn't a, I was, it was one department. Uh, but I never really felt like I was at a disadvantage um, being a woman. And now, at working out of the New York headquarters of Live Nation, um, but I, I mean, there's a lot of women there. But I mean, I feel the male influence. Must more testosterone. Yes, is that on? No, I'm kidding. Yes, it is. It's definitely more. Um, you feel the the male influence and the the male regard a little bit stronger uh, in the office. But a lot, the way that Live Nation works, and this will probably help explain the dynamic a little bit. So if there's, I don't know, 19 offices in the country, or maybe 26, or somewhere in that range. Um, and of, then we also have the headquarters in Los Angeles. They book, we have a lot of Live Nation tours. So LA will go and buy the whole tour. Say Kid Rock, for example, that's going on sale shortly. And then they figure out who, where the show is gonna route locally. Then that comes from, so we'll get the email, okay, Kid Rock's going to be at PNC Bank Art Center this date, and then we work to put together the marketing. There's not a lot of local interaction on the, the national tours. Mostly, actually, all of the marketers in Los Angeles are women. The two heads of marketing for the major agencies, William Morris and CAA, are women. So I don't, that's very female dominated. So I don't really feel, and, and it is, again, most, a lot of the marketers in the country, the VPs, well, it's probably half and half male to female. But there, I think, as it relates to marketing, there are a lot of females. When you go into booking, I think there are fewer females. That's probably more like 80% male. Um, so it's, the dynamic is, is very female based for marketing across the board. So you didn't, you don't feel, or didn't feel, um, being a woman <clears throat> was any sort of hindrance or handicap at any point in your career. No, I think I feel like if you had asked me this before I came to New York, I would say not. I don't feel any difference whatsoever. Being in New York and of the upper management in New York, um, there's only two women out of eight. So then if, you, if it, like, there's a woman who runs PNC Bank Art Center as a, the general manager, she's one of, I think, three in the country. So that's more of an operations-based job, so you almost assume that it's going to be more male-dominant. Um, but as, as it relates to the other VPs, um, I'm the only female, the other VPs. So I feel it a little bit more here. You know, upstate New York, I was more involved with the process of booking a show. So before it was booked, they would ask me my opinion. I had a lot of history in that, in those markets, so I would have input where, where I thought it would end up with attendance, what ticket prices should be, what the climate was for media. Um, here, I'm not that much involved in that process. And again, on a touring show, they don't really ask. Uh, it's more of the locally booked shows. So, you know, it was, it was a much smaller market, so there was a lot more interaction. Here, there's a lot of players. So let me ask you, how many of you guys have attended a Live Nation concert? Okay, pretty much everyone. Okay, 
could you, not that you're a spokesperson per se for Live Nation, but could you just give us a brief thumbnail because, <clears throat> you know, Live Nation is this monolith globally, but here let's focus on the United States. I mean, um, they have um, several divisions, I think I, I figured out. They, um, they have a concert division, a ticketing division, um, sponsorship. sponsorship and advertising division, and then I don't know if it's still active, the Artist Nation. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so they have still, so they have those four key branches. Um, and then, <clears throat> I mean, you would know this, but because I don't know if there's a House of Blues around here, I guess one in Atlantic City would be the closest one. But Live Nation has purchased and owns the House of Blues. And um, when you guys go buy a ticket, um, not only to Live Nation events, but I think to a lot of events, there's a company called Ticketmaster. And that's also owned um, by the folks at Live Nation. And by the way, Live Nation is a publicly traded company that uh, should you want, you could investigate in it or invest in it. Um, but I wonder if you could just like talk a little bit about how, you know, because um, you mentioned there's national tours. So that comes probably from a different. Yeah, from the LA office. From the LA office. But is that, is there a name for, I mean, so. That's the National Touring Division, would that be? Yeah, there's actually, it's, there's two different national touring offices, one in Los Angeles, the other in Toronto. And Toronto has a lot of the, it's called Global Touring. That's Madonna, U2, Lady Gaga, the police when they toured, um, Rush, as we spoke of earlier, um, probably just because they're Canadian. Um, a lot of the, back when we had the Rolling Stones, any of the, the real high-caliber tours come out of Toronto. Toronto. Mm -hmm. <coughs> and then, so LA, so when an LA-based national tour is booked, <coughs> coming to New York, do they ask you for your input? Oh, we market it. So it'll be, it, it, they'll buy, we'll buy the whole tour. We'll go to an artist and say, okay, we'll give you X number of dollars per date for your whole summer tour. It happens a lot for the amphitheater tours, so the Def Leppards of the world that really only tour in the summer. Um, most of those are, they come out of the touring entity. Um, but that's not to say that we don't have a lot that go into the arenas. Um, uh, Stevie Wonder is a Live Nation tour. Sometimes we don't have the entire tour, we may have 80% of the tour, but when it's booked and then they'll talk to the local office obviously for the venue avails so they'll reach out and say okay we want to do MSG or Barclays Center on these dates and then locally the bookers will get involved but sometimes that's also handled by the LA office so it depends but at the end of the day regardless of where this comes from Toronto Los Angeles they'll come to us and we market it so once the show is confirmed it goes to marketing ticketing and production production goes through and figures out sight lines and size of stage and how many seats and, and if it's going to be 180, 220, where they're going to set it up to start selling the seats. Um, ticketing builds the show and then we market it. So we'll reach out and put together a marketing plan which includes a paid component and a promotional component. And then we send to the respective management or our touring office, get everything approved, it's announced, we go on sale and we hope for the best. So there's <clears throat> different genres of music that come through the marketplace. So you mentioned Stevie Wonder, for example, and you know um, he appeals to a, a, a broader audience than in a different way than some of the rock acts you mentioned. And um, now you guys obviously have country artists coming through, which I would imagine is a little more challenging, at least in, in the Manhattan area, um, because of the local media has only recently had a local country station. Um, so is radio still maybe the dominant form for you to try to help get the word out? That's the best question, really. And when I moved, to, I've only been in New York about three and a half years, and when I moved here, no one drives. So when do you listen to the radio, usually, but in your car, satellite or terrestrial? So I asked... I, don't, I still ask people, do you listen to the radio? And I have yet to find somebody in three and a half years, just randoms, not anybody in the industry necessarily, just people 
who are friends of friends or whatever, and I, unless they own a car and they live in New Jersey or Long Island, no, they don't. They don't listen to the radio. But this really is the only city in the country where that applies. So when you're putting together these plans, and we've, we've changed, and, and I do want to get your interaction and your input on this, because we've changed the way we market shows, and it continues to change. There'll come a time in the not-too-distant future where 95% of it will be digital. Right now, we're probably at 40% digital. But you can't tell a Lady Gaga that you're not going to buy radio spots on Z100. You can't tell um, rock and roll, any rock artist, whether it's Santana, you know, Foo Fighters, ACDC, that you're not going to be on cue. So there's still that perception that in every other city in the country or any other any any place, radio is the driving force uh, behind selling concert tickets. As we do research, it's not. I mean, word of mouth is still on one of the top. So that's really interesting. But what is word of mouth? Is word of mouth going on an artist's website? Is word of mouth getting an email blast, an email, seeing it on someone's social page? What word of mouth can take on many forms? Uh, it, it's difficult because, you know, with radio now you're, you you look at Pandora and you look at Spotify and you know Sirius. We've even purchased, um, but that's limiting because you can only you know it's it's the news talk stuff, and it's the whole country. So. We've worked a lot more to incorporate Pandora and Spotify in the mix. Uh, but the artists, do, they don't want to get rid of radio yet. Not even close, actually. So what about <clears throat> local t television and cable? The whole dynamic has really changed quite a bit. If you looked at an ad plan, actually, when I started three and a half years ago, I looked at the ad plan, and I thought it was 1985. But it turned out that they just hadn't, they weren't digital. They weren't even really advertising on Facebook, which still turns out to be probably the best return on investment of any. Facebook. Yeah. It's, Facebook is really changing how you can advertise. It used to be much more efficient. You didn't even, before you didn't even really have to advertise. But now you can't even really post something without boosting it because your audience will be so small. So the, the climate continues to really change. Um, TV. It's, you know, there's so much vanity. The other big thing with New York, and I'm sure it's the same in L.A., is the vanity part of it. People want to see things. They want to know that if they listen between 6 and 10 a.m., everybody's going to hear the radio spot. Everybody's going to watch the Today Show and see the spot. You're going to watch Stevie Wonder last night. You were going to see the Stevie Wonder spot that cost $22,000. $22,000 digitally would last so long in trackable sales and... You know, retargeting, the way retargeting targeting works now is incredible. So if you just put the money into retargeting, so if you go on Ticketmaster and you look up Stevie Wonder, we're going to haunt you. We're going to keep following you until you buy a ticket. If you go, I'm sure everybody's looked at shoes or whatever, and then all of a sudden you see in your Facebook on the side, I just looked at those shoes. I just looked at that chair. So the ability to retarget and really focus the digital is going to outweigh everything, but there's still the the difficulty in the mindset. So we'll spend $500 on a Facebook campaign, and one of the talent buyers will say, well, how many tickets did we sell? Well, we only sold 30. OK, well, we just spent $22,000 on a TV spot, and we have absolutely no idea how many tickets we sold because of that. So it's a big learning curve, and it, it, especially with digital, it, everything continues to change. It gets better, but it gets more difficult. It's fragmented. The market it's, uh, is so fragmented. For you to achieve the critical mass, you need to sell tickets. You've got to do, I would assume, an abundance of different media. Um, and then you have the vanity play, as you called it, where they're going to expect to see their spot on the local avail on the Today Show or, or, or Fox Morning Show. Uh, and, and, you know, you question what the value of that is. And then, you know, terrestrial radio, they, they're going to and they want to, well, you're not supporting me. You didn't buy, you didn't buy any advertising there. And you're not sure how effective that is is what you're saying. Yeah, correct. I mean, I do think that if there was one sure way to sell a ticket, we probably would have figured it out by now. So there's not. It's multiple messaging. Uh, you know, last night on that Stevie Wonder special, normally I would say, $22,000, are you insane? But I thought That's it was targeted. a great idea. Yeah. But 
<coughs> how different is the New York because of the car and because you're under the microscope, every artist and every manager, versus when you were up at Saratoga? Well, the mass, I think that it's, the volume here is insane, but the population is insane. So I think that typically, like our database is 1.6 million that we reach every week with a newsletter and then we'll send out e-cards that are artist specific. So we can reach a lot of people that way. And if there's a pre-sale, sometimes we sell out in pre-sale. So some of these shows, we've, we've had usually not when they, when it's the size of an arena show, but we also have some smaller venues, 3,000-ish. Sometimes we don't spend a penny. We just put it out on social media, send out um, an email blast, and it's sold out. You usually know which ones those are going to be, but not always. And then, you know, with the, I know we briefly talked on the way here about some of the credit card-supported programs with the cities and Amex and Chase and the money that they put behind it to get and give us assets so that they get the pre-sales and they get the action. How many of you have a credit card? All right, so everybody's credit card. <clears throat> Any of you uh, get uh, a bill stuffer in with your monthly statement or go to the ATM machine and see an advert for an ongoing sale for a concert? Anyone had that experience? Or an email blast if you have a city card, um, Amex. And then how many, any of you um, subscribe to the Live Nation um, email service? If you bought a ticket wow. through Live Nation, then you probably get it. You can sign up, but it's typically from, and hopefully it's targeted and you're not getting stuff you don't want, but we're still working on it. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so you have no real, do you do Atlantic City at all, or is that out of film? No. So you, so you don't have any interface with the House of Blues? No, but back to your point, within Live Nation, there are two, as far as from a, from a programming marketing standpoint, there's North American Concerts, which is typically 3,000 seats and above, and then there's Clubs and Theaters, which is House of Blues. Here in New York, it's uh, Gramercy and Irving Plaza, um, and they do, their, their volume is tremendous, and they have an entirely different they have no ad budgets or very small ad budgets. So they rely very heavily on word of mouth, the database, old school <laughs> flyering. Don't they also run a, a, a generic ad in the, in the voice? In yeah, the and it used possibly? to be much bigger. But right. even, you know, to your point with radio, print is really, that has really changed. Where before an artist, typically on a, a show you'll get a marketing letter and it'll go over, sometimes it gives you information about the fan, breakdown demographically, whatever. Other times it'll, it'll get really detailed and say, you know, consider these TV shows for your buy. Um, and it used to always say, you know, must have at least a half page, four color print ad to break the on sale. Now typically the letters read no print, no print, and they're very anti-print. Um, so the Village Voice it used to be this thick, is this thick, and uh, print has really, really changed. So we used to have a double truck, now I think it's a half page. So that, that's definitely changed. There's still, the artists still like the New York Times, you know, full page, four color ad in the New York Times is $93,000 on a Sunday. Um, a lot of times you'll see like an American Express pre-sale, and that's paid by American Express. Ever notice that in the... And sometimes I guess the record company would chip in because they'd have a mini of the album cover. Or say they now don't chip sale. in as much as they should. <laughs> she said. So New York City, um, but tonight we're in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. So we have the Wellmont. Wellmont. And we have uh, down down a little further south. We have in Asbury Park the Stone Pony. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure there's other venues in the state. So what might be different in approaching? Uh, are alerting the audience for those particular venues that might be different than something in New York City. Or also, we could go out the other way, Long Island, Long Island and talk about, um, it's not called Westbury anymore. It's yeah, well, NYCB Theater at Westbury. Hey, they're paying yeah. for that. They're, yeah. pay they're paying for that. Uh, though, so Westbury, Wellmont, and uh, the Summer Stage, Stone Pony, those are out of the club division. So as it relates to what I do, it's PNC Bank Arts Center, Jones Beach, Prudential Center, MetLife Stadium, IZOD, 
um, out on Long Island, uh, Nassau Coliseum. The, hunt, the Huntington, I guess that would be the Paramount. Is, that's a that's a club theater. I mean, it comes into our umbrella because with with our messaging, um, with our database, that all goes through me. But in general, I don't direct market those venues. But New Jersey. Everybody likes to say that PNC Bank Art Center and Jones Beach are part of New York. And when we look at the zip code reports that show us who buys tickets from where, they're not. Uh, so I would say that I market those shows more like I marketed upstate New York. Right. So maybe we run a little more print. The New York City stations do carry out into those markets. So it's a combination of the New York radio and the local radio, especially when it, as it relates to country. Um, so it's a little more organic in New Jersey and uh, Long Island than, you know, just trying to clobber you over the head in New York. And, and your message gets heard more here because there's less clutter. <clears throat> what about marketing? I don't know if this is under your umbrella. Festivals, when they do, like they'll do an EDM festival. I've done a couple of festivals. We have Farnborough, which, which is at Randall's Island Country Festival for the first time this year right. um, at the end of June. Um, that's turned out to be a bit of a headache. but um, From a point of view of finding the right way of marketing? Well, it's a become a challenge because there's a lot of festivals. There's a, there's a lot of country festivals right around that same period. There's one in upstate New York. There's a couple in Delaware. One was just announced by a competitor in Delaware with a three-day ticket at $99. Ours is $250. So that becomes really challenging, and their talent, some would say, is better. Um, so that becomes a, that's a big challenge. That's when marketing gets stuck with a bad hand because no one will ever admit. There's a joke in the industry. It's, if it, the show does well, it was a good booking. If a show doesn't do well, it's bad marketing. Marketing rarely gets the, um, the sure. credit. Um, but the nice thing about New York is it is resilient and there are so many people. And when I say, I'll say, you know, proper, because when we're, we market, rarely do I market just to New York. It's always New Jersey, Long Island, for the most part, unless it's really small and it's an underplay and we're not really doing a lot. Um, but New York is pretty resilient. So we had last year when we had Jay-Z Beyonce at MetLife Stadium, we went on, we, they announced it sold out in pre-sale credit card pre-sale, 35,000 tickets for the first show from a Monday announced to a Wednesday. Then they decided to add the second show on the Wednesday to go on sale Friday, Saturday. And everybody thought it was going to blow out, and we went on sale with 14,000 tickets out of 35. And they didn't have a radio spot because it sounded like a public service announcement, an emergency broadcast, so no radio stations would air it. They didn't have a TV spot because they didn't want one. So here we had 20,000 tickets to sell in about a month, a little less than a month, and we really had no advertising tools to do it. So there was a little bit of pressure with that because essentially that one show was going to ruin the whole year for the New York business unit because there was so much money on it. So I got stuck in the rain and was totally soaking wet, and it occurred to me that we should sponsor weather in traffic because it was the summertime and we didn't need a spot we could just say this message brought to you by Jay-Z and Beyonce and I mean that's not the there was other things done too but that's one of those situations where you're stuck with the and you can't change the variables I can't make them make a radio spot they're not going to do a TV spot and what are you going to do and everyone you know Michael Rapino, the CEO of the company it's on his radar because there's a lot of things at play here. They're not going to go out to 15,000 people at a stadium and perform. You know, the last thing you want to do is start getting tickets out there where people think it's a fire sale. So you can't discount. You can't do any. You know, Groupon has changed the dynamic. We can get into that, too, as another outlet to sell tickets. But on this show, a high level, a high caliber show, um, we had to come up with something creative. So those, that's where you're, the job really gets challenging because you have to think of what to do that's not conventional, that's not traditional. You know, we were talking earlier, too, how there's no checklist. Like I don't sit down and say, okay, we're putting ACDC on sale. Here's what I need to do. There's general parameters where you know what you have to do, but sometimes you have to, quite often, you have to take a step back and try to figure out, Okay, how am I going to sell this? 
who do I need to reach? How can I come up with something that's compelling to a certain segment of the audience? EDM is a big one. You know, when an EDM show isn't selling well, that can be really tricky because it's a, usually a late-selling show, and, you know, why isn't it selling? Uh, they don't want to sit. They don't, you know, they want to warehouse. There are a million reasons. Well, that's too bad because I have this show at Madison Square Garden, and I have to sell the tickets to it. So there's a lot of different dynamics, and, you know, it's, it's not, okay, well, I did these five things that didn't sell. I'm not sure what you want me to do. You have to figure it out, and that, that's the biggest challenge because when you talk about a lot of, say this industry has a lot of ego, it's never, it's never going to be, I mean, the artists certainly, if everybody thought they could sell that many tickets and it's not, it's usually marketing is, is the scapegoat. Um, <clears throat> what about non-music stuff? Um, Live Nation used to do some theater, used to do some motor sports, and they got rid of all of that. So Live Nation is strictly a musical entity at this I'm point. I'm trying to think of anything. We do, sometimes there's a, a legendary promoter, Ron Delsner, who's still in the fold at Live Nation. And he typically likes to challenge the marketing department with very esoteric programming. Um, and he'll do a lot of foreign acts. Oh, he'll yeah. do some things that are, you know, nobody like, how do you, how do you say that name? And he's just like, oh, no. Um, but generally, it's all music-based. Sometimes we'll, like, if we're adventurous, maybe we'll do someone on Broadway or something. You know, we have Idina Menzel in the amphitheaters, which is a bit of an odd mix, really. Um, as evidenced by the sales, um, so but it's pretty. We stay pretty mainstream. We did Il, an, an Il Devo run on Broadway. That was a bit of a departure for us. But it's mostly music, and it's usually it's all genres of music. And to your point, country's been um, is a big grower in for us. You know, PNC Bank Arts Center's tremendous success with country. Most of the country artists that go to MSG sell out. Um, Barclays now is doing some country where we hadn't before. Um, so country's, country's pretty strong. But genre, every genre is treated a little differently with marketing and sales and, you know, depending on the level of the artist. Um, <coughs> so I don't know. When I, when I see a concert or tickets are available for a show, on Groupon, I go, oh, I, I guess uh, ticket sales are a little soft, so they want to move some. Is that, <coughs> is that, when, is that a sign that maybe <coughs> the demand is not as great as one thought? Um, in the beginning, yes. Live Nation went through a bunch of knee-jerk years with, uh, let's have $10 Wednesdays or whatever it was, and every Wednesday there'd be a different show available for $10. And it was a really bad move on our part because we trained people to wait. There was, no, there was no reason to buy tickets when they went on sale. There was no reason to do anything because if you waited sooner or later, there was going to be a two-for-one or a $10 something. Uh, so thankfully, we got away from that model. When the Groupons of the world came in, uh, we typically waited till the last minute. We would see the show's not selling. We'd throw it up on Groupon, look desperate. Um, there's, there's a lot of promoters who still hate Groupon. But you may notice that you'll see these offers come out right when the show goes on sale. So, which is interesting, but you get it right out of the gate. They, Groupon claims that 70% of their database do not know about the show. That, see, that feels high to me, but at the same time, I have a bit of a Groupon issue, and if I see something like, ooh, that's only $10, so I'm buying it because it's cheap. I'm not buying it because I necessarily want it. So I think that that's a big factor in the people who are bargain hunters. And if they think we've done things where we've put it on Groupon and it's not really that much of a different price, if then we'll say, okay, let's do a radio station, $25 Tuesday, whatever, and it's on Groupon for $25, the Groupon tickets sell much faster. So I think there is a little bit of a philosophy and people who tend to go to those discount channels, they want a deal. Hmm. I don't know. They don't share their data, so there's no way to know whether or not 70% really don't know about the show. Seems high. It does seem high. But, I mean, they could say 90. How the hell would we know? Any of you ever bought a concert ticket through Groupon? Oh. 
Was it a show that you would have gone to, or did you buy it because it was on Groupon? You would have gone? What was it? And, and you? Yeah, I went to the circus. I took my kids to the circus. A little bit different, but because it was on sale. All of a sudden, you get four tickets for a family, uh, you know, 25 yeah. bucks instead of 100 bucks each. And sometimes it really, it's sort of an adjustment because everybody thinks it's going to sell at one price point, and it doesn't. So that's one way um, to give value. I still, you know, I, I don't know if I had to... I would prefer to do other things than Groupon, honestly. I would prefer to, we reprice shows where the, the public doesn't know it. So maybe if you looked and you saw it was $80 and you went back two weeks later and now it's $60. So what do I do if I bought the ticket for $80? Hopefully you don't, well, it's hard. We try to do it, it's, it, it's dynamic pricing or flexible pricing. So, so there are some artists that you will get on a call at, if the show's going on sale at 10 o'clock, you'll get on the phone with them and they have, they would have all the top price seats and the second price seats and in between there are these sections that may go either way. So if those, the first section of seats sells out at P1 really quickly, they'll flip that middle section to P1. If they don't, they flip them to price level two. Um, so if you bought price level two right away, there's a chance that people five rows ahead of you will spend the same money, uh, even though you got there first. Um, that's what, and to be on one, it's like you're at a stock market. It's, it's incredible. Um, when Billy Joel and Elton John tour, that's the way they do it. And, you, and you're on the phone and they'll be like, section 213, flip it to da da da, and it just goes that way constantly. And these poor ticketing guys are sitting there trying to program in real time to sell the tickets to keep up with the way that the, the tickets are selling. We sort of do that uh, with the amphitheater. So if we see that the tickets are selling, um, we'll change the price of the section. So it's a little different, and it's not necessarily done in re real time. Or if the sections are really not selling, we'll, we'll discount them, and then maybe you get an email blast from us saying tickets starting at $25, when before they were starting at 50 so it's not so blatant, it doesn't look so desperate. Or we'll do a four pack. We try not to do, like a lot, I think a lot of the radio station, like today, you $20 tickets, a little hokey. The Kid Rock just came out with a show today, right. with an announcement today. And it's from rows two back, $20 tickets. And if you buy at the box office, it's $20, no service charge. It's a real $20 ticket. And they're taking the front row and some of the, the higher profile seats and doing packages to try to get them away from the scalpers. So um, that, obviously, it's not a high grossing show, but all the messaging is very positive. What about, I see advertised, the VIP experience? So I'm going to buy my ticket. Now I can get the VIP experience. Now what will I get for that? And what will you want in addition to the ticket price to get that experience? That's not done locally. That's either done through the artist. I think um, Kiss was one of the first bands to do that, where they would. I'm sure. Yeah, because I mean, they didn't miss a trick. Nope. They would have those front seats, and the only way that you could meet the band was to pay for this VIP experience. And then everybody kind of got on the bandwagon. You know, you'll always find 20 people at least. So. You may not, most people may not like meatloaf, but you'll find 20 people who will pay 150 bucks to meet meatloaf and get a, a seat. And sometimes they'll throw things in. You'll get a lanyard, that, a laminate that means absolutely nothing. A t-shirt, maybe you get a, some cheese and crackers. It, it, it depends. Um, sometimes there's meet and greets, sometimes there's early entry, but that's usually driven by the artist. And, and Live Nation has an artist nation kind of Sometimes they'll funnel it through, but typically that comes from the artist. And part of that, too, is from the scalpers, because all these upfront seats, the scalpers get in there, and they buy them, and they turn around, and they make all this money. And so in the artist's defense, well, let's make it, let's take these seats, let's dress them up with some fancy accoutrements, and we'll get the money. So I don't know that I find anything terribly disturbing about that. I think I have more of a problem with, you know, you go and buy, try to buy a ticket, and now on Ticketmaster, there's the reselling. So you can go on and look, or if you go on StubHub and it's sold out, and now it's $1,000 when it was 60 bucks. 
So the artists are trying to negate some of that stuff and keep some money themselves. Okay. Um, the uh, Artist Nation, which is a division that I guess Mr. Rapino uh, started, and I know it's gone through a couple of changes in, as far as personnel, but I see, I think Madonna was one of the first. Mm -hmm. um, then there's uh, U2, um, Gaga. Shakira. Shakira's a big one, yeah. So uh, is Nickelback. And Nickelback. Yeah. Okay, so then we get a Nickelback tour and we're all stuck with it. And. Duck. Because it's not, I mean, we have to. Now we've signed this contract and we're in it for 10 years or something like that. And. But you participate, each of these has a different thing. Like you two, um, I think you guys just own them lock, stock, and barrel uh, for another couple of years. Madonna, so, too. Right, so you get the touring money, um, the record company money, the piece of the merch. I don't know where the publishing stands, uh, but so. It's almost like a 360 deal yeah. um, with, with some of these artists. Yeah. Um, and so it's kind of in competition in a certain way with the record labels. Although, ironically, you're pushing back the artist back on a label because you, you know, Live Nation doesn't have the infrastructure to support that. Uh, the, the recording and the, the, promo the radio promotion and all that, that's involved with that. So do those artists, you have to, I guess, because the company has so much at stake, you have to really dig down and make sure those things. So as much as Nickelback <coughs> is seamless corporate rock, still you got to find a way of selling and filling those seats. Yes. Because you guys the are... The deal was made, right. So then you, you'll see a lot of Groupons for Nickelback. You'll see special deals. Uh, and we, everybody knows it. It's going to be a work project. There was a time Nickelback would sell out, which was when the deal was made. But that's not the case anymore. So... Yeah, there's some give and take. And we have Rock Nation also, which we should mention, and that's Jay-Z and a lot of, that's a, yeah. that's a big piece of the puzzle. And that doesn't always, just because it's Live Nation and under the Live Nation umbrella, it doesn't always mean that there's that synergy that's happening. You know, even with Ticketmaster, I think everybody gets treated better than Live Nation through, with Ticketmaster. We joke about that, but I don't know how much it's really a joke. So just because, and, and there's certain scrutiny because they think, oh, it's Live Nation, they're going to um, get an advantage. A couple of, two years ago, we went on sale with Jimmy Buffett, and Jimmy Buffett's agent is difficult. And the morning, we're getting on this said call, because he's also Elton John's agent, and we find out about two hours before that the Yankees are going on sale at the same exact time. It's only funny now. It was not funny then. So we're all like, oh, no. And we have to get on the phone with the agent. And they say, okay, how many tickets are in open? How many tickets are in question mark? Question mark means it's in the middle of a transaction. And then you can find out how many tickets are on queue. So they're not even in a question mark yet because they can't get on. And someone casually mentions, well, the New York Yankees tickets, single game tickets are going on sale today. And then the agent asks the question five minutes in, okay, how many are in question mark? And there's hardly any in question mark because there's like 14,000 in queue. Wow. And that was not a good day. That went all the way up to the CEO. And, but Ticketmaster never told us. So we wouldn't know when a sporting event was going on sale. So that was a little tricky, but those, you know, there's Ticketmaster and Live Nation, and here we found out because one of the guys in the office got an email from the Yankees. Hmm. Have there been any cases where Live Nation's partnered with a, another promoter? Yeah, we do that. Sometimes um, if, if there's, New York is interesting because there's a lot of competition. So in most markets, you know, AEG is Live Nation's biggest competitor. It's less than half the size of, of Live Nation. Here in New York, Bowery is a big competitor um, on more of the indie interesting bands. Uh, so you may get somebody who has a relationship with an artist. Um, John Cher, we talked about earlier, he has a relationship with Jason Mraz, and we had the Jason Mraz um, Five Borough Tour that we had to partner with him on. So sometimes the nice thing, there's still a little loyalty in the industry. And if there's, a, if there's history with an artist with a certain promoter, sometimes they stay true to it. And it doesn't matter about money, sometimes. Sometimes. 
I go back to the quote Doug Morris, who's now the CEO of Sony, said, you want loyalty? Get a dog. <laughs> Commentary on the business. Um, so a couple of questions here um, from some of the students. Um, Jillian posted a couple of really interesting questions. And um, she said, uh, if you could give any advice to a college student planning to pursue a career in the music industry someday, what would that be? I think um, what I see, it goes back to the passion. What I see, the biggest change, we get interns. I have a staff of six. Most of them are younger. Um, and the biggest difference I see, I've seen over the last 20 years is the level of commitment. Um, you know, when I started, if they had given me a toothbrush and told me to go clean the stage, I would have done it twice. Um, I didn't care. It was whatever it took. But I truly loved it. I loved being around every part of it. Uh, and now, you know, there's a certain element of a lot of this, a lot of these younger people that come through that they want to be rewarded for showing up. That doesn't, it might, it may, you may be okay, but it's certainly not going to help you rise to the top. So, you know, it's it, the biggest thing I can say is even when we get interns, if we ask a question and we get the answer, that's great. Sure, that's what we've asked you to do. But when they come back and say, okay, well, I noticed that I saw these three events that are very similar, and how about, and they have a relationship with so-and-so. It's thinking outside the box, taking it one step further. Uh, that's the biggest difference, and I think that's what you follow through being, you don't have to be terribly creative. You just have to think about it for 10 minutes. So if it, you can find something online and sound like you're an expert and spend 15 minutes doing it just because you took the time to look into it a little bit. Um, I don't know how many times there will be artists that we have that maybe we don't know, and someone who just looks it up and says, oh, they could sound like an expert. No one else really knows too much more, so it doesn't take much. Do the homework. Spend a little time. But I think that really comes from if you're passionate about what you're doing. If you really want to do it and you really, you may not know anything about it, but that's how you learn and that's where I, I think that the passion grows. I didn't know anything about the ballet and I'm going to the ballet Thursday night and it's 25 years later. So, you know, I hadn't been to a ballet and I was 21 years old and I had no idea what, what the hell was going on. I learned and I became a fan. But that did help me with my career because the more you know, the more it shows. So really taking the time, investing it. You're investing in yourself. That's it. That'll set you apart tenfold, because I don't see a lot of it anymore. And going uh, hand in hand with that question was, what was the uh, best advice you received throughout your career? Um, you know what? It's, it goes, I would probably say, when I was at Syracuse, I had to do a paper on um, somebody influential in the community. And I did it, the head of SPAC. And we went through this whole Q&A, and we talked about everything. And then I said to him, you know, basically, what is, what is it that keeps you doing this after 25 years? And he said, it has to be fun. If the minute it's not fun, I don't want to do it anymore. Um, so I don't know if that was the best advice as far as just that statement goes, but I think it goes back into the, the passion and, and finding excitement. I mean, there's nothing better than standing, like Jay-Z and Beyonce, standing in that second show knowing that, you know, it was a rough month and having it sold out. The feeling that you get, like, that you had something to do with it. And it's, it's not just, OK, well, they made millions of dollars. We made a lot of money. People, when, when I say what I do, one of the most gratifying things is people who come up to you and say, I saw so-and-so, and this was, and I proposed to my wife. And you know I had this happen, and, and people light up. And it's such an amazing thing to know that somehow, even so slightly, I had something to do with creating such a memory for this person. and that. You know, they'll remember that people you work in a bank they're like oh you know I made a deposit last Tuesday and it was who cares you know it's a harder job to get but I think that it's very gratifying um, and I don't know that as far as one one single piece of advice I, I wish I had something really funny to say and I, I don't um, but it was it's just 
you know, there's a lot of, I think be true to yourself. I was, I've never really compromised any of um, my integrity in this job, and I think that it's probably easy to do that. No, I'm not saying I haven't stretched the truth on occasion, but in general, just like doing a good job is doing a good job. And if you're really trying to do your best, um, it's easy to just get by. But I think just going that extra mile is, is and I don't know that anyone told me that. I'm not, maybe my father did. I'm not sure. But I loved everything. I was so into where I was and so glad to be part of it that it never felt like a job. And it, well, it sometimes feels like a job now. But in general, especially at your age and you, your place, everything is still magical. And I get jaded. Someone the other day was like, yeah, Paul McCartney's playing Irving Plaza, but I'm going to go upstate. And everyone's like, are you out of your mind? You can go see that? And it's not certainly not out of choice. But sometimes I think when you're new and you're seeing things for the first time, it is amazing. And I get probably a little mad at myself when I'm just like, this is, I saw Foo Fighters at Irving Plaza. I mean, people would kill for that experience. Or, and just taking a step back and realizing, this is amazing. It's an amazing, I have the best stories um, really ever. I have no trouble talking to people about my job. And, you know, but it does come from a place of passion. It does kind of, and it's hard work. I mean, I can, I don't know how many times I've missed vacations, friends going on a boat, friends going to the beach, friends going wherever, and I had to stay because I had to go to a show. Sometimes it wasn't the best show either. And, you know, you have to go, and you sit there, and you're like, I can't believe I'm missing all of this, or my friends are in Florida, and I'm sitting here, you know, at Harry Connick Jr., or whoever, and not, not to say that he's not worth seeing. But, you know, you get stuck, you're like, who the hell is this anyway? One time I had a conversation with Sarah Brightman for 20 minutes. I had no idea who she was. Then it was funny. Thankfully, I didn't say anything stupid, but... You know, and I was young, but it was just like I didn't know what to expect from Sarah Brightman, and the show was really quirky and fun. But there's a lot of sacrifice for this. Yeah, just talk to her about going uh, in, in, into space. This was way before that. Okay. I was young, and she—I had no idea who she was. But there's, you know, it's—it's a—it is a labor of love. It's a lot of fun. Um, it's not a nine-to-five job. It's not a, you know, here's the five things you should follow and you'll be fine. It's not. It's not but, any of those things. But you, ref you referenced some sacrifices. Lots of sacrifices. If you look at, you know, if you look at my office, there's, their hours are crazy. And there's a lot of single people. And there's not, it's very difficult to um, maintain a healthy balance. Balance. Because, but then part of, you know, like my social life is going to shows or being with work people. So it's a hard, it's a hard, not a hard balance it's an amazing balance because it's a built-in social life but at the same time you your your hours are committed and you're spending a lot of time outside of the home so if hypothetically you left live nation and took a job working for an independent promoter or crossed the street and went to work for ag how many of those people you socialize or or work with going to concerts and stuff would still maintain a relationship I don't with you. know. You know what? Probably not a lot. I can't imagine um, because you get so stuck and set in what you do and there's not a lot of time. I was, always think there's a difference between friends and business acquaintances. Mm -hmm. There absolutely and, is. And, and then sometimes you sit back and you look, you know, whatever and, and you think, oh, I just spent 20 years doing things with people that I don't even think I'll talk to, you know, two days after I leave. Right. But then you stop and think, like, well, why are you really doing it? Is it, it's not, it's not necessary. Like, I would go to a show, but in high school, I would go to concerts by myself. And all of my friends thought I was weird. I'm like, well, what do you, you don't sit and talk. You watch the show. I guess that probably is why I'm sitting here right now. But they all thought, or I'd buy a single ticket. They'd all get their tickets, and I could get a ticket closer if I bought one by myself. So I'd just go sit by myself. <laughs> A little odd, perhaps, but I don't think I ever went totally alone. I think I would just branch off when I got there. But now I watch concerts by myself all the time. I want to thank Donna for coming down tonight. Thank you.
You've been listening to William Patterson University's Music Management Seminar Series on Music Biz 101 and more. If you missed any of this, just head over to our website, musicbiz101wp.com, or Stitcher Radio on your mobile device and download our podcast. I think it's time to say goodbye. Goodbye now. For Steve Leeds, our special guest, our esteemed and very valuable producer, Philip Gorachowski, and the good Dr. Esteban Marconi, I wish you an adios!